Welcome to Relax, Relate, Reflect About Big Questions with Daniel Bernardus. Today we're listening to an audio recording of a lecture by Marcel Canois at Amsterdam University College. Marcel has been a fly on the wall at Rabobank for two years. He had full access to the bank at all levels and wanted to answer the question, what has changed after the crisis? He has come up with an answer that avoids both easy external criticism and the bank's own marketing story. Even though his book was written in Dutch, his lecture makes its key points available to an English-speaking audience. The lecture has been split up into three episodes. In the first episode, Marcel introduces the genesis of the project and the methodology he followed. The second episode contains his main findings, and the third contains answers to the questions from the audience. You're now listening to the second episode on his main findings. Please know that this is copyrighted material, you are free to share this file as it is, but not to modify, shorten or copy it in any way. We actually appreciate it if you share this file with friends, family or colleagues who might be interested. For more Relax, Relate, Reflect About Big Questions, visit danielbernardus.com. But now on to the lecture. We are going to change to the substance of the book. The first question is what has changed? On the first slide, I limit myself to the things that work better than 10 years ago. The more critical points follow afterwards. But what has changed is quite a lot. And this is not a limitative list. It's not a full list. I mean, first of all, the top of a bank, if you look at the top of any bank in Europe, any bank, not Rabobank only, Avia, Amro, ING in the Netherlands, or any other bank, you will typically find white old males. Females, no, zero, maybe sometimes one, as sort of excustrus, as we say in the Netherlands. But young people, no. There are at least 50 plus. Non-white people, forget it. There, there are zero in the banking world. So that has changed. In Rabobank, they have a management team of 10 people. Four are women. Two of these women are quite young. And of the males, there are at least three who are well, certainly below 50. Some, I think there's even one below 40, which is very unusual. So. It creates a different culture, and I've been at these management meetings. And I, I'm a personal strong believer of mixed teams, mixed both in terms of gender and also in terms of other, other personalities and maybe race. Uh, I mean, mixed teams are, in my view, and there's also quite some evidence about this, perform better because they don't go into this bubble in which everybody is similar. Now, ethical issues, I can talk forever about this. I was quite surprised that they have an ethical committee at the Rabobank, which is headed by the chairman of the Rabobank himself. I was there at one of their meetings. And it's very interesting to see, not that they are behaving very ethically, that's not the point that I want to make, but they have a lot of ethical dilemmas. You have to realize that a bank has to finance entrepreneurship, right? That's one of the purposes of a bank. Now, where do they draw the line? In sectors like red light district, in sectors like soft drugs, weapons, tobacco, animal welfare, sustainability. So there are a lot of these topics where it's obvious that they cannot do everything because then they would be too close to criminal activities or to things that you really don't want, like weapon stuff. But where to draw the line is extremely difficult for a bank. Of course, they don't want to be involved. For instance, take tobacco. You think now that, that should be an easy case now, eh? As a bank, you don't want to do tobacco because it kills people. It's very bad for you. And so, no, we're going to stop doing tobacco. So every bank says, are you a tobacco producer and ask for money 
for the bank, forget it. You won't get it. You think, oh, that's an easy case, right? No ethical dilemmas. I don't do it. What it means, if they are strict in this, that Albert Heijn it cannot be a client of the Rabobank because he can buy uh, cigarettes in Albert Heijn. So this line, that they cannot draw the line there. So where, where do they draw the line? It's complicated. And it's a, this is a trivial example, but in all these things, they have ethical dilemmas and they have to draw the line. And sometimes they draw the line because there's a public perception that they shouldn't do it, although they can actually, they can easily explain why they do it, but they still don't do it because they cannot explain it to the public. Transparency has increased dramatically. Well, the, the fact that they allowed me is one signal that it has in, increased, but they are really much more open to things than they were in the past. And the idea that poverty alone is not enough is certainly kicking in. I say the flesh is weak uh, because my book is called The Bank van Goede Bedoelingen, The Bank of Good Intentions. And this is a bit of a double title, double edge title, because it's not only positive, huh? because one can have good intentions, but if good intentions don't lead to good actions, there's this saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. That's really one of the more important conclusions, and I'll come back to that. So they have good intentions. I am convinced of that. The people who work there are not crooks. They are humans. But many times, good intentions do not lead to good actions. And it's interesting to understand why this is the case. That's actually one of the, in my view, one of the more interesting conclusions. Now, there have been many scandals associated with Rabo. I don't see a scandal, a big scandal, uh, coming up with this management. I would be really shocked if there's a scandal of the same magnitude as the ING scandal of this year or any other scandal that Rabo itself was involved. And this management let that go by. I would be shocked. I think that uh, then I have failed to see that. Smaller scandals, oh yes, they will be there. They cannot be avoided, but not big ones. One of the most interesting conclusions is best explained by two concrete stories. The guy on the right, his name is Tom Borgholz. And he is the chief, was the chief risk officer of the Rabobank in Tanzania. And I traveled a full week with him to lots of different clients. And why is it interesting to tell this? I realized during my travels with Tom, and we've been everywhere, very, very, very tight schedule. We did lots of different things. And certainly in a country like Tanzania, you get to learn a guy quite well if you are together for a full week there, lots of strange things happen. And I realized after this week, this guy is really an ideal banker. And why? Because he was very tight on finance. If there's a client and he gives you a bullshit story, I'm not going to finance this guy. So he was very strict, but he was also very human. So he, he took time to clients which were not a very important financial clients for the Rabobank, small M uh, MKB, or so a medium-sized firm in the outskirts of Dar es Salaam. He would spend as much time with them and he would be as patient with them as he would be with a millionaire. Of course, the deal was different. And what he also did very well, he actually takes decisions on the basis of his heart and his experience. He's an experienced guy, he's 60, 62 years old. So he would talk to you, you are his client, and said, okay, uh, what's your business? What's your track record? And what's your cash flow? And then he talks to you for an hour and he has a social talk. And says, okay, I'm going to finance you. And then back home, he has to explain because sometimes it's not according to the rules. He says, oh, but these rules are stupid. Sometimes these rules are good. I say, I have nothing against the rules. These rules are based on averages. So on average, it's a fine rule. I'm not, I have nothing against it. 
But I have a, a good story here why you, who may not fit in this rule, are still a trustworthy client. Because you have a good story, I believe in your story, I'm going to find... And he also had a very good track record. And if he did this, actually, these people would be loyal to him. Eh? Because they realized that he has to he stick his head. And then, then he would get it back. I thought, okay, it's nice to actually see a banker who does a good job. And then I told him, so what are you going to do now? Is his contract expired? He says, will you go back to the Netherlands? Said, no, I, I don't want to go back to the Netherlands because my type of banking doesn't work in the Netherlands. I thought, well, that's a, that's a, is a bad signal. Because here is somebody who does everything right. And actually, he is back in the Netherlands, <laughs> although he did want. He does everything right. So you really want bankers like him. You want all bankers to be like him. And what he tells me, I cannot bank like this in the Netherlands. So apparently, we collectively do something wrong. And because the optimal behavior that we expect from a banker cannot be. So I said, why? Because the deals that I make here, they will be disallowed. It's not according to the book. Second story, similar result. It's a tragic story. I can talk for hours. This is the family fork. The family fork. This is the guy. He is in a tent. And he, uh, this tent was there uh, because he was kicked out of his house by absolutely atrocious behavior by the municipality of Uithoorn. You think that these things happen in China or in some countries where they don't take human rights very seriously? Well, it happens in the Netherlands too. Don't make an illusion. Don't think that the government is always your friend. Sometimes they are, sometimes they are not. In this particular case, they were not. They did really horrible things such that these people's house basically fell apart. Legally, these people couldn't do anything against it. First of all, it's very hard to uh, win law cases against the government, but the government had a trick. They couldn't do anything about it. So these people were basically from one day to the other, normal, nice people. They did nothing wrong in their life. And from one day to the other, these people were bankrupt. They had a 100,000 euro debt because they couldn't pay their mortgage anymore. Their house was worth nothing anyway. It just basically fell apart. So what do you do? So the bank decided to help them. So the bank, initially, the person, same as Borgos, this was a good person. And because she thought, okay, these people uh, did nothing wrong in their life. They've been, they are the victims of dubious actions by others. I, as a bank, I'm not going to punish them again by enforcing the rules to the letter. And because that would not be a very human way of banking. For the bank, I mean, these, are, these were small houses. 100,000 euro for the bank. It's, it's not that they, they give this away and because they still have. But they don't want to push it to the limit. For instance... They could charge them a certain percentage of interest rates, and, and it would mean that these people were longer years had to suffer from an absolute subsistence level. But the, uh, why is it still a bad story for the bank? This, although the individual banker did everything right, is that the strange rules in this country are that when you are in a situation like these people, you cannot have your own company, certainly if it's a risky company. So you have to be kill the company because they think that it's too risky that because they want you to be a teacher or, so, or something which you have a salary and because then you, you can... But the problem was, on a human level, the company of this person was the only thing that kept them alive. The woman of the house was already fell apart. She had uh, mental problems, physical problems uh, as a result 
of all the actions. And the company that this guy started was their only life. And the banker realized, yes, these people should be allowed to keep this company because that's not only good for these people, it's, it's not only good, it's the only way that we can do it, but it's also good for the bank because if these people do what they are happy with and what is their only life, the probability that they actually will pay back their debt is also high. So it was a pure win-win situation. And I can explain this to my mother and to, any, uh, to a 10-year-old kid in five minutes. Now, the, what's the problem? The woman who wanted to do this, it took her crazy, crazy. She had to do crazy things inside the bank to realize this. Yeah, because she had to convince her boss. She had to convince the boss of her boss. Then she had to convince the head office in Utrecht. And then there was another. And so, at the end, somebody fell asleep at the Rabobank and threatened to cancel this whole deal. And I had to interfere. Now, of course, it's not proper behavior by anthropologists to interfere in the subject that you uh, study. You look frowning. Uh, you think it's proper? Well, I would not do it normally. But in this case, I could not not do it because these people would have been suffering. So I did it because I thought, okay, I'm helping these people for once. It's okay. I can explain it. I write it down and then people understand that I did it. But of course, terrible that I had to do it. And because suppose that I was not there, maybe the ending would, be, would have been worse for these people and they would have suffered very badly. Now, this is a big conclusion because what's happening in the banking land is you have a banker here and he can push on this button. It's a bad button. It's bad for the client. It's even not obvious that it's good for the bank themselves. It may even be bad for the long-term interest of the bank, right? Then I can also push on this button. It's a good button. It's good for the client, also good for the long-term interest of the bank. Now, what happened in the banking land is that if I push on this button, the bad one, nobody will ask questions. Coincidentally, the bad button is according to the books, it's according to the rules. Yeah? So my boss is not going to say, ah, you have followed the rules, you are a bad banker. He says, okay, you followed the rules, fine. Because he doesn't know the context of the client, so he only sees, he pushes the, uh, he pushes the button, he follows the rules, good banker. If I push on this button, I have to spend three, four, five times more time and effort and all sorts of people will tell me that I've done the wrong things because it's not according to the rules. But this is a good button. So what's happening is if you are stressed or you have a challenging uh, job, which most people have, and I can push on this button, nobody will ask a question. It takes me five seconds. Or I can push on this button and I have to spend a whole week explaining to uh, lots of people who think that I'm a bad person, that I do this. Okay, at the end, if I'm intrinsically motivated, I can still do that. And I can tell them, okay, I have spent this week. But I have spent it week and I explained to everybody that this was the right thing to do. But you make it very hard to push on this button. It's much easier to push on this button. If you only have a day and you know that this will take you five days, and this will take you half a day, you push this button. That's a bad one. And this happens all the time. This happens all the time. And this is not only the fault of the bank. Because some of these rules are imposed by regulators who enforce the rules by the letter instead of by the spirit of the law. Now the laws are written, they are general laws. And they are not written 
to apply in each specific context. Some of them are. There are minimum standards of human rights. Okay, it's good that they are there and they should be enforced by the letter. But in many rules and regulations are based on averages and do not take into account the context. In the context may show you that these averages are not very important, that in this particular context, like the family fork, it was obvious that this rule was stupid for them. Completely obvious. Why, if it's obvious for everybody, do they make life so hard? And even the amount, it's not 10 million, it was 100,000. And it's not 100,000 loss. I mean, it was the interest of 100,000 what you're talking about. It's ridiculous. Okay, I'll tell you a little bit about the structure of the book. It's a bit strange to end with this almost, but I am doing it anyway. I'm not going to go over this because it will take too much time. But you have an idea what I've done. So I've looked at the local banks. And the local banks, they used to have their own license, and now they have centralized. And I wanted to know whether this is good news or bad news for them. Of course, the verdict is mixed. And what's also very strange about these local banks, probably you don't realize this, I didn't realize it when I started this book, is when you go to a local Rabo bank, these buildings are huge, but empty. They're not fully empty, but it's clear that they are built for a different world. Right? Because we bank with our watches, uh, sorry, with our telephones and with our laptops. And these buildings were built at the time that people actually would go to banks to collect their money and to do all sorts of things. And we don't do that anymore. And that's not bad. It's not the bank's fault. Uh, that's a reality that we are in today. And it means that they have to lay off staff and that they're stuck with buildings which are half empty. It's a strange feeling. Now, so I wanted also to know how do they deal with that. Chapter three. Utrecht Central, a little bit of a joke, of course, but that's where the head office is. And I wanted to know what they're doing in the head office. Turns out that they use very funny jargon, for instance. <laughs> I don't know, do you guys, your generation, typically don't read newspapers anymore, I think, but at least somebody told me. Is there somebody who reads the NSA Homespot? Yeah, you do. Do you know Jabke de Bauma? And she's written two articles about my book. <laughs> One of them about the chapter on Utrecht Central because they use funny jargon, and I wrote a fairy tale about this. So Japke Dey has written a piece, and then the next week she interviewed Wiebe Dreyer about this. So why are you using this strange language all the time? It was, it was very funny. Now, chapter four is Rabo spreads your wings. I wrote about Australia, Oi Mate, and about Tanzania and Hong Kong. Because Rabobank is a very important bank for food and agri in the world. We don't know that, because we think that it's just a bank in the Netherlands, but actually for every euro they make three euros here and they make already one euro abroad and this, of course, this will change. Their foreign activities will become much more important in the future. The uh, fifth chapter is when you're in trouble, I call it when you're in trouble, in Dutch it's bijzonder beheer, that's the, the default unit, that's the unit where you come when you're in trouble. You cannot pay back your mortgage anymore or, or your company is in trouble then this unit pops in. Of course, there's a section on the scandals, and there's a chapter on the ethical dilemmas and sustainability. And then, and then there's the conclusions. On the conclusions, there are five. I'm not going to talk too much about three of them. I already talked quite a bit about one of them. Then I will talk about smork because that's very interesting. The other three, forget about them. You can read the book and then see what's in there. Smork is a term which comes from the behavioral economist Dan Ariely. 
because it's not something that I have invented. And SMORC stands for a small model of rational crime. And it's actually a very, very, very interesting. You have to read the book by Dan Ariely, which is called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. And it shows under what circumstances people cheat. And when I say cheat, I don't mean outrageous lies like Trump or Baudet or whatever these clowns uh, did lie the whole day. I'm not talking about those cheats. I talk about little everyday cheats like we all do. And it turns out that 5% of the people are pathological liars. And 5% of the people never lie. And most of us lie, sometimes convenient lies, and sometimes a little bit cheap. Now, why is it important for the banks? Because there's a famous experiment in the book by Ariely, in which he lets students answer a number of questions, simple questions, and then they have to self-report how many they got right. And it turns out that 90% of the people cheat a little bit. And why is this the case? And they think, okay, I have 25 right, and they had 24 right. And the reason is, you don't want to look in the mirror and see yourself as a cheater. So if you only cheat one, you said, I, I knew this question. You know, I mean, I made a typo or a slip of the pen, and, or I made a calculation error. So you're mini-cheating yourself, but you are not an outrageous liar. Okay? This is a hard, hard experimental result that's been replicated many times. Now, why is it important? Because there is a second experiment, which is exactly the same as the first experiment, with one difference. These students get not paid in money, but they get paid in fiches, like monopoly money or whatever, fiches, chips. And then it's told by them, by the instructor, you can convert these chips into real money next door. It's the same money. Yesterday it was real money, dollars. Now it's chips, but it's the same dollars if I cash it next door. Now what happens? They cheat much more. More people cheat and they cheat more. Why? It's chips. It's not money. And why is it important for this book? And why is it important for the bank? Because, because of the digitalization, bankers don't see clients anymore. So they will, they will behave like the chip people. Because it's not humans that they face, it's spreadsheets. Now, if I cheat a spreadsheet, it's not real cheating. It's only a computer. Now, this is a big risk in, in the society that we live in, with Facebook and with digitalized banks, and you have it, that people are treating them not as real money or as real people. And accordingly, they cheat more. Not because they are bad people, but they are people. Not because they are pathological Trumps, because they are people, and people behave in this way. And this has been tested and tested again. Fortunately, you can do something about it. You can do something about smork. You can invent tricks. Behavioral economics is about inventing those tricks and identifying where is the highest risk and do something about it. I will give you one trivial example, and then I stop. A trivial example is this. There's a pension fund in the Netherlands, and there are guys who are making investment decisions for these pension funds. And they are huge, huge, huge money. Yeah? And the pension funds are incredibly well funded and very, very rich. And they have to make decisions which have huge implications for many people, pensioners. So what they do is whenever they push on a button in which they really make a transaction of big impact, a face of a pensioner is shown in their face. Either with photographs 
the wall or they have a software device and we test it. It sounds like a really easy and trivial trick, but it's been tested and this works. And because it shows them it, it's not a spreadsheet, this is a human. So don't treat it as a spreadsheet because it's a human. Now, in the banks, you can also do a lot of these things. Artificial things, maybe. It feels like a trick, but it works. And it reduces the probability that you suffer from smart. And it's an important conclusion. And it's one of the few conclusions that the bank doesn't recognize, at least not to the extent. So I told them, look, this is a problem. And I'm shocked that they don't recognize it because this is one of the easiest curable problems. It doesn't cost a lot of money to solve this. I mean, you have to have a guy who does smart behavioral economics and these tricks are not, I mean, the software showing a face of a pensioner, it's not something that costs you millions of dollars or euros. It also shows to society that you actually care about these things, you take it seriously and that you act upon it. But Vibidrai said, well, no, no, this is bread. Behavioral risk officer is not needed. I can do that myself. Well, I think he is wrong. All right. Thanks a lot. This was the second episode in which Marcel Canois introduced the main findings of his book, The Bank of Good Intentions. In the third episode, you'll hear his answers to questions from the audience. For more, relax, relate, and reflect about big questions, visit danielbernardes.com and sign up for the free newsletter there. Feel free to share this file as is with friends, family, and colleagues. Thanks for listening.